uh, Genesis 25, if you've got your Bibles. We're going to be in Genesis uh, chapter 25 this morning. And while you're turning there, if you don't have a Bible, we've got some for you on that table over there. Uh, You can go grab one, uh, and please keep it. That's our gift to you as a church. But Genesis 25, this morning we are closing out our time together, kind of closing the chapter on the life uh, of Abraham. And so uh, after this morning, we're going to take a quick break from the book of Genesis. So I'll let you know where we're going. We've got uh, in the next two weeks uh, a series on deacons, uh, which is very exciting. And then uh, we'll have a standalone, and then we'll do kick off our Advent series uh, through the Gospel of Luke, the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, uh, just to get our eyes on Jesus and his coming into the world and taking on flesh uh, to save us. And so uh, looking forward to all of that, and then we'll pick back up uh, in Genesis kind of early mid-January. Uh, But this morning, with us coming to the end of Abraham's life here in Genesis and and coming to the end of our journey with him, uh, I I think it gives us the opportunity to do something a little bit different this morning. And so what we're going to do is we're going to work through these 18 verses pretty quickly, uh, and then I want us to try to kind of draw together Abraham's life as a whole and kind of draw some lessons from it and see what it might have to say to us, because I think God uh, really does have quite a bit to say to us from the life of Abraham as a whole. And so let's read these 18 verses together uh, and jump in. Genesis 25, starting in verse 1. The very word of God to us today speaks to us like this It says, Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Madon, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Ashurim, Letushim, and Leumim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Epher, Hanak, Abadah, and Eldah. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Beer Lahai Roy. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth. Nebaoth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, Adbil, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadad, Tamah, Jeter, Nafish, and Kedemah. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names, by their villages and by their encampments, twelve princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. Uh, So the text begins by telling us that Abraham took another wife uh, other than his wife Sarah. 
And most people think that this actually happened before Sarah died. So this happened sometime between uh, when Isaac was born and then before Sarah died. But Genesis is just kind of taking it out of chronological order uh, and putting it here at the end of Abraham's life to kind of tie a bow on everything and wrap everything up and kind of get all the loose ends together. Uh, And I think that's probably right in what's going on here. But even with that, I I think we should just remind ourselves, uh, Abraham should not have done this. Uh, I don't think it rises to the same level that it did when Abraham slept with Hagar because he didn't trust the promise of God to give him a son, Uh, but that still doesn't make what he did here right. He should not have done this. He should not have gotten another wife. And as we move forward in the book of Genesis, you're going to see when when the patriarchs practice polygamy like this, uh, it always ends up with just massive, massive family dysfunction. And so it should not be this way. And so once again, the Bible is being descriptive. It's telling us what happened uh, instead of being prescriptive, telling us what's right and what we should do uh, here in this passage. Uh, But even with that, Abraham, in his old age, is incredibly fruitful with Keturah, and uh, he has six sons with her. Uh, But even with that, notice what it says in verses 5 and 6, that he gave all these other sons gifts Uh, But he gave all that he had, the full inheritance to his son Isaac, and he sent all these other sons away from Isaac, east to the east country, so that Isaac would be on his own. Uh, And I actually think that this is a deep act of faith. Because what Abraham is doing here, uh, he's not hedging his bets. Like, he's not trying to diversify his stock portfolio and uh, lower the risk on his assets. He's not trying to put a bunch of eggs in different baskets, hoping one will hit and he'll get a big return. Uh, He's going all in on the promise that God has made that this promise is going to continue through Isaac. He's pushing all his chips in on Isaac and saying, giving him the full inheritance, so much so that if God doesn't come through and doesn't do what he said and doesn't fulfill this through Isaac, uh, Abraham's got no recourse. He's got no plan B. And so this is a deep act of faith on the part of Abraham. He is trusting God in all of this. Uh, and I know on first read, it might sound a little bit harsh for him to do this, to just give these other son gifts and send them away from Isaac. Uh, But once again, you've got to remember the promise of God. The the promise that God gave to Abraham and his family was never meant to terminate on Abraham and his family. It was always meant that through Abraham and his family, all the nations of the world would be blessed. All the peoples, people from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation would be blessed and find salvation because of this promise through Abraham. And so Abraham, here at the end of his life, he's kind of laying things in order, getting everything in order so that the promise will be preserved and it will continue through the line of Isaac uh, so that these sons listed here uh, and the nations and the peoples that descend from these sons would one day be blessed. Uh, In fact, listen to the words of Isaiah 60, 1 through 7, and tell me if this doesn't sound a little bit familiar. It says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nation shall come to you. 
A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaoth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar and I will beautify my beautiful house. And so Midian, Ephah, Sheba are all listed in this genealogy of Abraham and Keturah here in Genesis 25. Uh, Nebaoth and Kedar are listed in Ishmael's genealogy in verse 13 of chapter 25. And this prophecy in Isaiah 60 is fulfilled in Matthew chapter 2 when Jesus comes into the world and wise men from these regions uh, travel far to come see Jesus, meet Jesus, and they bring him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, just like Isaiah 60 said that they would. And so through Jesus, the true son of Abraham, the true son of the promise, blessing is going to come to these people because God is faithful to his promise. Like men and women from these peoples are going to be saved. God is using Abraham here to separate them from Isaac so that one day these peoples and these nations would be blessed through Jesus. Uh, Derek Kidner puts it like this. He says, in God's plan... These sons were sent away that there might be a true home in the end to return to. As the text moves on, we continue to see God fulfilling more and more and more of the promises that he has made to Abraham. And so in verse 8, it says that Abraham died a, a good, an old man, well advanced and full of years, and that he was laid to rest with his people. He was gathered with his people. And this basically is word for word what God told Abraham almost 100 years earlier in Genesis 15, 15, when he said that he would be buried in a good old age, he would be buried in peace and die and go to rest with his fathers. Uh, Verse 11 says that after Abraham's death, God blessed Isaac, just like God promised that he would in chapter 17 and chapter 21, that he would make his covenant with Isaac, that he would continue this promise through Isaac's line. Uh, And then as we move into Ishmael's genealogy, we see even more fulfillment uh, as it tells us that Ishmael has 12 sons who became princes. Uh, This is a direct fulfillment of what God told Abraham in Genesis 17, verse 20, When he said, as for Ishmael, I've heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes and I will make him into a great nation. Verse 18 says that Ishmael settled over against all his kinsmen. And this is word for word uh, what God told Abraham and Hagar before Ishmael was even born in Genesis 16. He said, he shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. And so even in these small, seemingly insignificant details, God is keeping his word. He's doing what he promised that he was going to do. Even though Isaac is the one that this promise is going to come through, God does not go back on what he promised both to and about Ishmael. He keeps his promises. And I think Gordon Wenham does a great job drawing out the significance of what this means. He says, if the Lord fulfilled these rather minor promises, he will surely fulfill his much greater promises through the chosen line of Isaac. If God did not overlook his promises to Ishmael, how much more certainly will he fulfill those guaranteed by oath to Abraham about Isaac and his descendants? 
And so once again, just the consistent drumbeat that we've seen in chapter after chapter after chapter of Abraham's life is that God is faithful to Abraham and his family. He keeps his promises, and he does what he says he's going to do. And so with that, I think it would be helpful for us now to try to kind of sum up Abraham's life and journey as a whole and God's faithfulness on display to him all throughout his life because I think it just has so much to say to us. And so the first thing I want you to notice about Abraham's life is actually something that somebody in, in my community group pointed out a few weeks ago that I thought was just such a helpful insight, uh, which is just to notice how much Abraham changed over his lifetime as he walked with God. Uh, this really should fill us with a ton of hope because Abraham went from really being kind of a bumbling idiot to a dude with deep, unshakable, untouchable faith in God. Like, he went from a pagan moon worshiper when God called him, and then even after God called him, he's pimping out his wife and sleeping with Sarah's servant because he doesn't trust the promises, to by the end of his life, he's got a faith in God that you just cannot touch. Like, it's absolutely unshakable. He was willing to offer up his son on the mountain, uh, the thing that was most precious to him in this life, if that's what God wanted him to do. He buried Sarah in the promised land in faith of God's promise that God would keep his word even beyond death. Uh, he sent his servant to go get Isaac a bride uh, that followed the Lord so that this promise could continue. God deeply changed him into a man of deep faith. And listen, this is what God can do, promises to do, and will do in us as we walk with him by faith over a lifetime. He will change us just like this. And listen, if you hear that and you think, well, uh, I feel like I'm kind of behind the eight ball here. Like, I didn't grow up in church. I'm not even a follower of Jesus right now. Like, hear me, you're not. Abraham spent the first seven and a half decades of his life, 75 years, as a pagan moon worshiper before God called him and saved him and began to change him. And so listen, you can start today. Like you can come to Jesus today and be saved by him, and he will begin to change you just like he changed Abraham. I mean, Abraham started way, way, way behind the eight ball and yet look at what God did in his life, and look at how God changed him. And the reason that we can have so much hope and confidence in God to do this is just because of the deep patience of God that we see on display all throughout Abraham's life. Because let's just be honest with each other, like, if you were God, you would have given up on Abraham. If I were God, I would have given up on Abraham, and I would have chosen to work through someone else. But God just refuses to give up on him. He keeps working with him. He keeps changing him. He keeps forgiving him. Uh, he keeps giving his promises to him. He is so incredibly patient with Abraham, and he's just as patient with us, which I think is just incredibly good news. Uh, because I, I wouldn't have just given up on Abraham if I was God. Like, I would have given up on me by now, too. Right, because I am so quick to be such a fool and just give in in the same areas uh, and fail to trust God in a place where he has already proven himself faithful a million times already in my life. And, but even in our unfaithfulness, God remains faithful. He just refuses to quit on us. He refuses to change his mind about us, and he loves us way too much to stop the work that he has started in us. 
And the good news is that God's not kind of sweating out this process either. He's not worried about whether or not it's going to take and whether or not you're going to change. No, he knows and has orchestrated that change is not going to come quickly. Like, listen, it took Abraham a long time to change, an incredibly long time to change. Uh, And so, like, hopefully, and hopefully walking through his story has shown you uh, that he is a much more complex character uh, than what maybe you were presented with in Sunday school or maybe what you've heard about Abraham. Like, he, he will display these deep moments of faith where he has this incredible trust in God, and then he'll follow it right up immediately after uh, with just absolutely blowing it and doubting and refusing to trust him. Uh, you think he's finally past this, and he's finally uh, not going to struggle with this anymore, only to get to the next chapter and see that he falls in the same way on his face once again. Like, he, for the vast majority of his life, uh, he's just start and stop. He's one step forward, one step backward. He's up and down, just like we are, in the same way that we are. And so listen, while we should never, ever, ever, ever uh, get comfortable with our sin and quit fighting against it, I I do think this shows us that we should have some patience with ourselves. Because no one in here is as far along in the Christian life as they'd like to be, but the truth is that God has us. And he's not going to quit on us. And he's not going to change his mind about us. And, and so when you do inevitably blow it again, like five minutes after we're done here, when you walk out to the car and scream at your kids and you blow it again, like don't get frustrated and, and get furious with yourself. Like, ah, oh, I, I thought I was past this. I thought I was never going to do this again. No, bring it to God and repent. Like, because when you don't do this, when we don't have patience with ourselves, when we sin, we're going to run away from God to either beat ourselves up over that sin or clean ourselves up, and neither of those things are going to lead to lasting change in our life. But if we will just get honest when we sin and bring it into the light and say, God, I know I did what was wrong there. I know I sinned. I know I didn't trust you. Please forgive me. Change me. Help me to move forward. And then we move forward knowing uh, that God's love for us has not changed, that he has not changed his mind about you, that he's not going to quit the good work that he started in you, uh, that he is for you. Uh, When we move forward in all of those realities and we get back up again, that's when God really begins to do a deep work in us and change us. Uh, And so you keep coming back to God. You keep getting back up and coming to him instead of wallowing in in your sin. And so we should have patience with ourselves, but not only should we have patience with ourselves, we should also have patience with others. Listen, it is so hard for us to not put standards on others that we would never actually be able to fulfill ourselves, but we should not expect people to change overnight. It's just not going to happen. And listen, God is patient with us, and he is patient with them, and their relationship and their union with Jesus is secure because he died for them. Uh, It's not dependent on how quickly they're growing. Uh, And so as people who have received and are experiencing the deep patience of God toward us in Jesus, we should want to reflect that same patience toward others. We should seek to be patient with them as God is patient with them. And the way that patience plays out is by giving each other safety and time to grow, uh, walking alongside of one another. Like, we should give each other safety and time by taking sin seriously 
And then also taking God's promise to heal and change us and set us free from our sin when we confess and bring it into the light just as seriously. And and so we should commit to walking alongside of each other, helping one another fight against sin, encouraging one another in the gospel, knowing that this isn't going to be an overnight process, that this isn't something that you can put an expiration date on, uh, that this fight and struggle against sin is something that we're going to wrestle with as long as we have breath in this life. And so we commit to walking alongside of one another, helping one another fight against sin, giving each other safety and time to grow as we encourage one another with the good news. And so I just want to ask you, uh, do you have anybody in this church that you can do that with? Do you have anybody in this church that you are doing that with, that, that knows you and you know them and you can encourage them in these ways? If you don't, How can you move in that direction? Like, what step can you take to begin to develop a deeper relationship so that you really know and are known uh, here in the body? The second thing I want us to see from Abraham's life uh, is just that he actually did grow. Like, God did not just save him and call him and then leave him to himself. He changed him. And God called him to do some things. God called him to leave the land to which he was from and journey to the land that God would show him. He called him to trust him and walk by faith. He called him to trust that he would bring his promise to pass over decades as he waited to fulfill this promise. And God showed us that this is what the Christian life is going to be for us as well. The Christian life is about us learning to walk by faith in God. It's how we grow And look, we really are called to respond to God's grace in our life. We are meant to walk in a deeper trust of God as a result of his grace. God's grace should make us assured, knowing that our relationship with him is not dependent on our performance, but it should not make us lazy. Because listen, God's grace in our lives, it calls for and it demands a response. God's grace meets us where we're at, but it does not leave us where we're at. And so look, I want to press a little bit here. I'm not anti-sermon at all. It's, it's kind of my job and what I've given so much of my life to. I love it. I'm all about it. But with all of that said, uh, the sum total of the Christian life is not you hearing a sermon once a week. Like That's not the standard of faithfulness to Jesus. At some point, you've got to trust and obey and take a step of faith and do what God is calling you to do. You've got to take a step of faith and obey what you hear in the Word. Because God tells us that if we are, uh, that we're to be doers of the word and not simply hearers only. And that if we are only hearers who never respond, never trust him, never obey what he calls us to do, uh, we're just deceiving ourselves. We're just playing religious games. God calls us to respond. And if you don't know where to start with this, if you don't know what a response to God's grace in your life looks like, this is actually why we have the partnership commitments that we do here at Veritas. Uh, partnership is what we call membership because we really believe that that's what's actually happening uh, when you join a church, that you are partnering with us, you're joining arms with us to advance the mission of Jesus together and help each other follow Jesus here in the church. And and so when you and I covenant together to be a partner of this church, we're, we're committing to do a few things. We're committing to live a life of holiness. Uh, Look, we're under no illusions that we're going to be perfect and without sin in this life, but we are committing that we're going to be quick to repent, 
quick to walk in the light, quick to be honest with God and with one another, that we're going to strive to grow, to look more like Jesus, and to deepen in our love for him. Uh, We are committing to live a life in community, that we're not going to try to do the Christian life alone, because nobody in this room uh, is Superman or Superwoman, and, and we're dependent on one another. We need each other. We're interconnected and dependent, uh, and that we're actually going to help others do the same. We're going to help others follow Jesus, because the Bible really explicitly tells us that without that, we won't be both individually and as a church, we won't be all that Jesus has called us and saved us to be uh, unless we walk in community with one another and help each other follow Jesus. Like, it's that serious. Uh, We are committing to live a life of giving because so many people have said that your wallet is the last frontier of discipleship. Like it's the uh, most difficult area for so many of us to be the last place where you kind of trust Jesus and submit that area of your life to him. Uh, And we give not because the church needs your money, uh, although I will say having a paying job is pretty cool, uh, but we, we don't give because of that. Like We give because Jesus tells us that where our money goes is a really good indicator of what's going on in our hearts and what we treasure most and what we value most in this life. And, and so we seek to more and more uh, understand that, that it's God's money. It's not our money, and he's given it to us to be a steward of it. And we want to be good stewards that are generous uh, and as much as we can bless others uh, with what He's given us. We're committing to live a life on mission, that we're going to seek to uh, build relationships with our friends and our coworkers and our neighbors and the people we come into contact with throughout our lives, and we're just going to try to talk about Jesus with them. We're going to talk about what Jesus has done in our lives and point them to the good news uh, of who he is and what he's done. And we are committing to live a life of service committing that we are going to look for, other way, for ways to serve other people here in the church. It's a commitment to say that when you see a need, uh, that you won't say, oh, that's someone else's problem. Someone else will do that. That's their responsibility. No, you'll, you'll take it on yourself and you'll say, that's my responsibility. I'll seek to meet that need. I will seek to help. And so I'm going to look for ways to pray for people. I'm going to look for practical ways to meet their needs. I'm going to look for ways to serve uh, so that the church can be built up and be all that she has called, uh, been called to be. And, and I bring all of these commitments up to say, uh, these are just some of the foundational basics of what it looks like to follow Jesus. These are just some of the, really even the first steps of what a re- faithful response looks like to God's gracious work in our lives. And, and listen, I'll tell you, I see so much of this here already. Uh, can I brag on my community group for a little bit? I don't know why I'm asking. I'm going to anyways. But uh, uh, man, just this year, we have uh, had multiple people in our community group who have had to walk through some really incredibly difficult things. Uh, And it's been really encouraging to my heart to see so many people in our community group just rally around them in all these different ways, ways like uh, getting a meal train started and consistently praying for them and uh, people dropping their plans and what they had planned to do to just go sit with them and be with them uh, in these difficult situations. And and even beyond that, to see so many men and women in our group uh, getting together to pray for one another and pray with each other and read the Bible together and encourage one another uh, in all these different ways beyond the community community group night uh, has just been really incredible to see. And and listen, I I know our group is not an outlier in that. 
Like, I, I know it's not the only place. There's so many areas here where all of this is going on in the church, but this is a lot of what this looks like. It's continually making the shift to, I'm going to care about and privilege others' needs uh, above my own. I'm going to treat other people like they're more important than I am, which is admittedly really difficult. And, and it's a commitment to say, for better or for worse, like, my life is here. I, I'm I'm going to live my life with these people. They're going to help me. I'm going to help them follow Jesus, but I am here, and I'm committed, and I'm all in. Uh, this is what God calls us as followers of Jesus to do, and, and I want to encourage you, following Jesus like this and responding to his grace in these ways, uh, so often it's just really ordinary and not flashy, uh, and I think that's on purpose. Look, the Christian life is not flashy. It's not one mountaintop experience after another. I mean, think about this. In 14 chapters of Genesis, we've covered 100 years of Abraham's life. Do you know what that means? That means that even for Abraham, there were a whole lot more ordinary days that we hear nothing about than there were extraordinary ones that are recorded for us here in Genesis. Uh, and the same thing is going to be true for us. There's going to be much more ordinary days than extraordinary ones. The Christian life is a long obedience in the same direction. Uh, it's about every day learning more and more to trust the Word of God and the promises of God just a little bit more than the day before. Uh, it's learning every day to just uh, step into these callings and responsibilities just a little bit more faithfully than the day before. And how do we do that? Well, I, I think we do that by getting our eyes on, on kind of the big point that I think both this passage and Abraham's life as a whole is pointing us to, which is that God's patient faithfulness, create, faithfulness creates faith and faithfulness in us. Like God's faithfulness to us can actually create a response of faith and faithfulness in us as we more and more begin to trust that he will never fail to keep his word and do what he says he's going to do. Let me, let me give you an example uh, of how this plays out. So I think most of you know uh, I am a huge University of Oklahoma football fan. Uh, some would say it's an obsession. Thank you for like the two claps I got there. Uh, some would say it's an obsession. I wouldn't say that, but I do want to be honest and say that some would. Uh, and, and being a massive OU football fan, uh, what I've had to learn over the course of my life is that I, I, I really just can't put too much of my heart into it because when I do... Uh, they're going to rip it out and crush it into a million pieces every time. Uh, I, I cannot tell you how many experiences of heartbreak I have endured. So the last time we won a national championship uh, was 2001. And, and so for the vast majority of my life, we've been right on the doorstep without ever being able to get back there uh, and win another one. I've endured as a fan heartbreak after heartbreak. We got back to the national championship and lost by a touchdown in 2003. Uh, we made it back in 2004 and lost. We made it back in 2008, and we lost by 10. But to be fair, that was God's team with Tim Tebow on it, so I really don't know how we could have won that one. Uh, we made it to the playoffs in 2015 and lost. We made it back in 2017 and lost in double overtime. We made it back in 2018 and lost by 11. We made it back in 2019 and got boat raced by LSU in that one. Uh, and so, man, just for years, we've been right on the doorstep without ever being able to get back. Uh, and, and I'm not bitter about it or anything, if you couldn't tell. Uh, but, but over these two decades, I've just learned 
I, I just can't trust them. Like, I can't put my heart into this because they're, like, until something changes, uh, we're always going to be the bridesmaid and never the bride. And so I just, I can't get my heart into this or it's going to get crushed. Now, uh, in, in a more encouraging flip side of that, a little bit less depressing, uh, in the opposite way, when you see that the opposite is true with God, how even in a passage like this, where he just fulfills his promises in these details that really seem small and insignificant and meaningless, how you just see even in these ways, he never fails to keep his word, like that will grow faith in you. The Bible is just a record of God proving it again and again and again, over and over and over. And when you saturate your life with that, it will grow faith in you. You will begin to trust his faithfulness as he proves it time and time again. I mean, this is what it did in the life of Abraham. Think about how God makes and then seals his covenant with Abraham in chapter 15 and chapter 17. So God comes to Abraham in chapter 15, and he engages in this covenant ceremony with him. And it's this incredible picture where God walks through the pieces of the animals all alone, symbolizing that he will keep both his and Abraham's side of the covenant. And so God gives him that incredible promise. And then what does Abraham do immediately after in chapter 16? He sleeps with Sarah's maidservant, Hagar, because he doesn't trust that God's actually going to fulfill that promise. But what does God do in chapter 17? He comes back to him, and he seals and ratifies that covenant that he made with him in chapter 15, and he basically says, Abraham, I'm not changing my mind about you. I'm not leaving you. I'm not going to quit on you. I am going to bring this promise to pass through, through you and do what I said I was going to do for you. Like, how could that not grow faith in you when you absolutely blow it, and yet God doesn't turn away from you or change his mind about you at all? Like seeing God's patient, faith, patient faithfulness on display to his people in the Bible over and over, it will create the response of faithfulness in you. It will create trust. I promise you that it will. God will do this in you. The final thing I want us to see from the life of Abraham is just the future hope that Abraham's life gives us. Because when he dies here in chapter 25, he dies without seeing the fullness of what God has promised to him. Uh, it's not given to him in this life. But, but even though he doesn't see the fullness of it, uh, his long journey of walking with God and learning to walk by faith and trust him more and more was not wasted because Abraham's hope ultimately was not in this life. Maybe you notice in verse 8 of, of Genesis 25 that it said that Abraham, he died and then he was gathered to his people, or uh, maybe your translation will say his uh, fathers or his ancestors. And, and if you notice, maybe you thought that was a little bit interesting because it says he's gathered to his people, but then verses 9 and 10 tell us that he's buried in the tomb that he bought for Sarah alongside of Sarah. Now here's what that means. Uh, Abraham being gathered to his people cannot mean that he was buried with his people because he was not buried with his people. He was not buried with his fathers or his ancestors. He was only buried with Sarah. And, and so all throughout church history, uh, people have seen this as a reference to the fact that Abraham is in some way still existing after his death, that in some way he is gathered to his people even after he dies. Uh, and in fact, Jesus confirms this. 
Uh, in the Gospels, he's in a conversation with the Sadducees, a group of people who did not believe in the resurrection. And they get in an argument with him. They ask him a question. And like normal, he shows them up and gives them the business. Uh, and after he's done giving them the business, he, he adds on at the end. He says, and it's for you guys not believing in the resurrection. Uh, do you not read the book? Like, ha- have you not read the passage in Exodus when God comes to Moses and appears to him in the burning bush and refers to himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, that event with Moses happened long time after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob died, but God still says that he is their God in the present tense. Like, he, he doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And, and Jesus says that God says that because he's not God of the dead, He's God of the living, and all live to him, including Abraham, Abraham after his death. You see, Abraham's story teaches us what it looks like to walk by faith in this life because it gives us a resurrection hope that goes beyond this life. Abraham's life shows us that God is the God who has power over death. He has the power of life. He has the power to give life to us. And he is the God who, even when we die, he ensures that we will live. His life points us to the day when death will be defeated once for all and sadness will be no more. And we will see the promises fulfilled in full. We will receive the fullness of these promises. And look, we know that this is true because we know the end of the story. All along, Abraham's story has been pointing us to Jesus, the one that his story is ultimately about. You see, Jesus is the true son of the promise, the one to whom the Father has given all that he has. Jesus is the true son of the promise, the one who was born not just to a woman in her old age, but to a virgin who had never even known a man. Jesus is the true son of the promise, the one who didn't have a lamb sacrificed in his place because he would be the lamb who would be sacrificed in our place so that like Isaac, we would be spared from death. Jesus is the true son of the promise who wasn't just symbolically raised from the dead like Isaac. No, he truly defeated death through his resurrection. Jesus is the faithfulness of God on display. He is this faithful God in human flesh. He is the God who walked with Abraham all his days, and he is the God who walks with us. And because Jesus is alive and he's risen from the dead and he's victorious over death, we have hope that can strengthen us to walk by faith all of our days. We have the same hope that was given to Abraham. Because the resurrection of Jesus proves that God will never go back on his word, that he will do what he said he's going to do, that his promises will come to pass, and that proven faithfulness can create faithfulness in us. Uh, Paul, at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, as he's talking about the resurrection and the hope that that Jesus' resurrection brings us, uh, to sum it all up, he says this. He says, Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters... Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Look, because of Jesus' resurrection, everything you do matters. Every prayer, every time you serve, 
Every time you trust and obey Jesus, every time you share the gospel, every time you take a step of faith and do what God has called you to do, every time you live to show that Jesus is better than anything else, it's worth it and it matters. Because of the resurrection, nothing that you do for Jesus is in vain. Nothing that you do in faithful response to Jesus is wasted because there is a hope that's greater than this life, a hope that goes beyond this life, and it's a hope that can actually cause us to walk by faith in this life. And so look to the faithfulness of God proven in Jesus, and it will create faithfulness in us. Let me pray that it would. Jesus, thank you for this good news, that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever that you are the God who walked with Abraham, you are the God who walks with us, and you will carry us all of our days. Uh, that, that like Abraham, when we come to the end of our life, uh, even if we haven't seen the fullness of what you've promised in this life, it is coming because you are faithful and you will bring to pass what you've said. And, and you will carry us through death into eternal life. And so Jesus, I pray we would live in that hope uh, that the resurrection would change us to be a people who walk by faith uh, and trust that there is more beyond this life uh, that's worth living for in this life, uh, that we can trust you, we can believe in you, and we can respond in faith. So Jesus, would you, would you help us to do that? Would you help us to be a church that just trusts your word and trusts what you say uh, and respond in obedience all of our days, more and more? Would you grow us and change us like you changed Abraham? Would we have uh, men and women in this room who decades from now we could look up and point back and say, look at what God did. Look at how he's moved in us. Look at how he's changed us. Look at how he's transformed us from what we used to be uh, to what you're making us into. Jesus, thank you that you will finish the good work that you started in us, that no one will be snatched out of your hand, and that those whom the Father has given you, you will not lose one. Thank you for your kindness. Help us to respond to it now in your name. Amen.